It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Events over the past year have shone a light on racial inequality across the globe. Australia is not an exception. This nation's journey towards a more just, equitable and reconciled identity still has a long way to go. With that in mind, and in the spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. Hello and welcome to Policy Forum Pod. I'm Sharon Bessel. I'm Professor of Public Policy here at the Crawford School at the Australian National University. And I'm Director of the Children's Policy Centre and the Poverty and Inequality Research Centre. And I'm here, as always, with my amazing pod buddy. It is great to be back on the same side of the microphone. Um, I'm Anna Hunter. I'm a cardiologist and physician. I'm the Human Futures Fellow at the College of Health and Medicine here at the Australian National University. In recent weeks, we've been talking about the social impacts of Australia's cost of living crisis that we're seeing unfold, in fact, globally. We are living in interesting times. We're facing a number of significant challenges that include the ongoing coronavirus pandemic, a reversal globally in progress towards ending extreme poverty, growing inequality, climate change, biodiversity loss, and the increase in regional security tensions. In the Australian context, policy response to the serious challenges has been muted over the last decade. And we're seeing a series of challenges faced by Australians today across a number of key systems, including healthcare, aged care, in the environment, climate change, education and child protection. We've also commented since the election on optimism and opportunity that's have been arising, particularly when we think about serious policy change and policy solutions. And so we'd like to kick off our next mini-series or series of conversations, which we've labelled Systems Under Strain. Over the coming weeks, we will be looking at some of the big picture challenges facing Australia, the Asia-Pacific region and the globe. To start our series, this week and next, we're going to be talking about maybe the biggest and most important system of them all, our planet. Australia's new Environment Minister released the country's 2021 State of the Environment report earlier this month. She described it as nothing short of shocking. Received by the previous government in December last year, the government that chose not to release it before the May election, the report says that our natural world is in a poor state and it's getting worse. It paints a picture of species extinction, a rapidly changing climate, unsustainable use of resources and negative impacts on the health and well-being of Australians. So today on the pod, we want to explore the report in a little bit more detail and talk about Australia's climate and environment policies moving forward. And we have with us today one of the world's best climate experts to do that. 
Mark Howden, would you like to introduce yourself to our audience? Hi, I'm uh, Professor Mark Howden. I'm the director of the ANU Institute for Climate, Energy and Disaster Solutions. And I'm also a vice chair of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. And, and for my sins, I'm uh, the chair of the ACT Climate Change Council and on a whole bunch of other advisory committees. Mark, it's fantastic to have you with us to go through this. Um, as I mentioned in the introduction, we're embarking on a series of conversations around the major policy challenges of our time and particularly thinking about the policy system response that are in crisis. Mark, you've been working on issues around climate change in the environment for uh, several decades, uh, researching and providing expert advice to governments so that we can protect and preserve our planet and our future. What was your reaction to the this most recent State of the Environment report? Oh, I, I guess uh, a combination of uh, you know frustration, disappointment, sadness, um, uh, and and I, th- I think reflection on missed opportunities. Uh, that was the the things that went through my mind when I heard the the fundamentals of it. Mark, there's been a, a lot of attention on this most recent um, State of the Environment report. I wonder if just to set the scene, you could talk us through some of the things that we learned about the state of Australia's environment through this report, particularly when it comes from climate change. Now, what are the, the key messages that we need to, to take out of this report? When it comes to the sort of climate and extreme events component, uh, the report very much told us what we pretty much already know, um, you know, that uh, uh, greenhouse gas emissions are going up, that this is impacting on Australia's climate, temperatures, rainfall, um, extreme events, uh, that this is already having very significant impacts in many different areas and uh, and we're, in a sense, behind the eight ball in responding to this, uh, responding at, at the global scale through our greenhouse gas emissions targets, um, at the national scale through... Uh, um, setting up um, appropriate uh, biodiversity acts in this case and, you know, revising that, Um, and and at the local scale by actually not having uh, appropriate measures uh, that bring in capacity, including that of Indigenous people, First Nations people, into uh, dealing with uh, the changes that we're seeing and the impacts that we're seeing from climate change. Mark, can I just follow up on that and, and ask how you would like to see Indigenous knowledge being brought into these discussions, being brought into action? You know, how would things look different if we were genuinely valuing Indigenous knowledge? I think as far as I understand, this was the first State of the Environment report which particularly brought in a First Nations voice and, and one of the commissioners was uh, from a First Nations background. And so so I think that's a really good step. We're actually getting different voices, different perspectives into this assessment. And when we look at uh, First Nations, clearly uh, they've got a, a huge amount of accumulated knowledge of um, ecosystem responses uh, and their interaction with climate and with management, so, for example, fire, um, and, uh, and are able to provide advice on how to achieve particular goals. Now, one of those is, is clearly and, uh, and also demonstrably uh, improving our fire management across our landscapes. And and this has already been taken into account, particularly in the northern parts of Australia, where Indigenous uh, fire practices uh, are used to not only reduce fire risk, but also to enhance uh, carbon sequestration, reduce net greenhouse gas emissions. 
And, and one of the key questions, of course, is, uh, you know, how can we take that sort of knowledge from First Nations people and integrate it into fire management programs in other parts of Australia more effectively than it has been? So that's just one part of it. But obviously, there's also knowledge about uh, um, biodiversity and ecosystem management that can be brought into, say, management of our national parks and uh, and enhance the, um, the prospects for uh, con- conservation of key biodiversity species. The politics of the report uh, are really interesting and and I think quite sobering. Um, Former Environment Minister Susan Lee received this report back in December 2021 um, and made a choice to not release it before the election that took place in May this year. And, of course, the report was then released seven or eight months after it was submitted to government. Uh, It's a five-year report and so that, that delay is not insignificant in terms of the reporting period. I wonder what your thoughts are uh, about the state of environment policy and governance in the Australian landscape when a minister can sit on a report of this magnitude for that length of time, when time is perhaps precious and when it, particularly when we're thinking about irreversible change to, to the planet like species extinction and sea level rises. What, what are your thoughts on the politics? Yeah, without knowing all of the details of, of why it was delayed, etc., I, I guess for me it just is... Um, a mismatch between the pace of that release uh, and the pace of climate change, between the urgency of effective responses to climate change and the apparent lack of urgency in releasing that document. And it seems to me that we do need to, uh, you know, ensure that our responses are fit for purpose um, given the circumstances we're in. Mark, one of the perhaps the glimmers of hope in a a report that is a fairly depressing read is that it says that immediate action with innovative management and collaboration can turn things around. Um, And of course, that delay that we just spoke about becomes even more problematic when we think that action needs to be urgent. But I'd love to hear your thoughts on what are the first steps that you would like to see taken, particularly in the in, in regards to climate change, to ensure that Australia can change course. I mean, these are things that we've been talking about for, for a very, very long time. Um, but what would you like to see happen in terms of that immediate action that the report to, talks about? Oh, well, I think uh, we'd, we'd look, look at some of the recommendations of the report and uh, and actually um, start to act on them. And, and one of the key things which has come up uh, through you know, other processes is the review of the EPBC Act, that's the Environmental um, uh, Biodiversity Protection Act, and uh, which was done by Graham Samuels. And that came out with a whole series of recommendations about how, if we're serious about uh, protecting biodiversity, uh, we need to to, um, basically almost completely gut that act and start up again. And and in his case, he was advising that we actually need to have environmental standards uh, right across the nation, uh, which have a compliance component, and that this becomes uh, an integral part of decision making. And so, so it seems to me that um, you know that's part of what we need to think about. So, you know, very rapid uh, upgrading of, of our legislation associated with biodiversity conservation. Secondly, I think uh, we we know that this week uh, we've got the. Um, climate change legislation in the federal parliament uh, going through the lower house uh, and then uh, presumably it will get through. I haven't actually looked at the news today as to whether it has got through, but um, and then going through the upper house. And 
Uh, and so what we need, I think, is is to get that locked in, uh, to get certainty into decision-making processes and then look to uh, revise that current target um, uh, through the Climate Change Authority or whatever mechanism is appropriate uh, and, uh, and do that in alignment with the expectations of the Paris Agreement in terms of achieving the Paris Agreement temperature goals and aligned with the activities and levels of commitment that other countries, equivalent countries, have actually signed up to. And, and so I think that's a really important start. The next thing I think we have to do is actually start to say uh, an assessment of what is the broad picture of the Australia we want to have in relation to climate change. So, so actually start to develop a vision of where we want to go as a nation in terms of both emission reductions and in terms of adaptation responses to climate change. And that actually requires a, essentially a, a public discourse course which does have leadership from including the government but other interested parties, which actually starts to give um, some degree of reality to the concern which is being expressed by the vast majority of Australians that they want more action on climate change. I think we're at the state where we need to start actually delivering that more action. So there are three amazing sets of suggestions in terms of the policy response. Just wanted to flesh this out a little bit further. There's the the climate change bill, which is currently up for debate. And, and as I'm checking, I don't know if it's if it's passed the lower house as yet, but but hopefully it goes through at some point uh, this week. Um, and then there's the EPBC Act review and the need for that legislation to be updated. Um, firstly, do you see a role for an environmental protection authority such as they have in the United States? And I know that's been part of the Samuels recommendation. What role do you think that would play in terms of climate change and climate policy? The details, of course, in the detail, but but broadly what it does is it sends a message that environment is important, uh, that, uh, that government is serious about climate change, it's serious about designing effective policies and delivering on those policies. Uh, and I think that's a message which we've had in states, like various states actually have EPAs or equivalent, um, but we actually need that as well in the Commonwealth. So I think um, what that does can well be aligned with the sorts of changes um, identified in the Samuels review and uh, and put together as a package that if we can get good alignment with the states and territories, uh, we can actually start to have some degree of uniformity in standards in terms of environmental expectations and how all parties need to abide by those. Mark, the State of the Environment report again highlights this relationship between protecting the environment and the changing climate uh, and particularly the challenge of climate change that we we have seen um, with increasing uh, intensity in the last few years. There's talk about this, the legislative response, the Environment Protection, Biodiversity and Conservation Act. Should it have a climate trigger? Should we see that as a direct relationship between the two um, legislative responses or do we leave a Climate Change Act separate to uh, the Environment Act. What do you think? It's a really interesting and, and highly political uh, topic, and and I've heard different points of view. And uh, it, it strikes me that we do need a climate trigger of some sort, uh, so that comes into assessment of new proposals. Uh, but whether that is best placed within the revised EPPC Act or somewhere else, I, I don't have a strong view. Um, but but very clearly, there's an expectation. Uh, both within our polity here in Australia and also internationally, um, that uh, approving new coal and gas um, uh, extraction 
activities is not aligned at all um, with achievement of the Paris Agreement goals. And, and even a conservative agency such as the IEA, the International Energy Agency, has come out and said that fairly bluntly, uh, that if we are to keep temperatures down to within 1.5 to 2 degrees, uh, we can't open up new coal and gas, and that applies to Australia as it does everywhere else. So it's, it strikes me that um, one of the challenges is a hard-line uh, um, approach, you know, essentially a regulatory approach which says, you know, no more activities like this which would have significant ramifications, regional development and employment and export earnings, um, or a slightly softer approach which actually puts that in as a, a key metric of assessment um, for new activities. So um, that would possibly allow some uh, mines uh, and activities to slip through provided that there were some compensating factors, you know, carbon capture and storage, for example, um, which was guaranteed, um, like it had been guaranteed at, at the Gorgon plant over in Western Australia but but not delivered. But, um, you, you know, if it's going to actually be part of the um, approval process, then it has to be delivered. Mark, you, you made the comment just a, a moment ago that we need to think in Australia and make a decision about what we want the future to look like in regard to, to climate change, to to the environment more broadly. Um, and, of course, having the kinds of conversations that lead us to that point in Australia have been incredibly difficult over time. The debates have been so polarised and so politicised. And it seems to me that just getting everyone to the table and having that conversation in a way that's constructive and productive is, is a real challenge. You know, you've been um, a, a leader globally in, in this area for a very long time. You've seen the way things are done in other countries. And I wonder if you have have seen models that have worked really well in terms of bringing people together to have the kinds of conversations that we need to have in Australia, or uh, you know, or whether you have ideas on how we can start to move beyond that deep polarisation. Look, it's a, a really great question, and uh, a critical part of this is actually leadership. Um, and, you know, bipartisan leadership or tripartisan leadership that actually takes us forward. So so you actually need to um, do away with some of the divisiveness that has characterised the Australian discussions and those in some other countries. And, and that's not just um, leadership at a political level, but there's uh, industry um, roles in leadership, there's NGOs, non-government organisation roles, and there's also media, um, I think, has a, a particular role in stopping the fake news associated with climate change, um, starting to actually align the, the journalism with the science, um, uh, stopping the sort of deliberate attempts uh, to um, ramp up concern about issues where we can actually find uh, effective solutions um, rather than ones which, you know, generate really strong winners and losers. And, and so... When that starts to happen, I think you can actually uh, start to have that um, process which brings people together um, and has what otherwise would be very contested views about the future and actually starts to have common views about the future. And, and I think when you, you come down to it, for the vast majority of Australians, um, there would be some agreement. You know, we don't want to have a future where the black summer fires become regular. We don't want to have a future where the Lismore floods 
look pale in comparison to the things that we get in the future. You know, we don't want to have a situation where we flip from the worst droughts we've experienced to the worst floods we've experienced. Uh, it's, a you know, almost completely unmanageable uh, when it happens like that. And so I think there's a lot of commonalities that uh, can occur, and that's partly because different people will approach that in different ways. So some people will say we don't want that future because of the damage to human health. Others will say we don't want that future because of the damage to the environment. Others will say we can't afford the economic costs of that future. And all of those are legitimate points of view. And by actually working together, we can actually probably find pathways which uh, allow each of those different points of view to actually be acknowledged and achieved through appropriate action. Mark, I, I think that's a, a fantastic framing, a fantastic set of advice in terms of how we begin to move forward and and overcome the the problems that we've built for ourselves. And I think we could all agree that we don't want to see another black summer. We don't want to see the Lismore fires, uh, the Lismore floods happening over and over. I think that's a great place for us to take a very short break and to come back um, and to talk more about how we move forward. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Around the world, democracies are in crisis. Leaders have become followers. Populists offer glib solutions to complex problems, and people search for answers. Block out the noise. Each week on Democracy Sausage, we go deeper to bring you insights from leading scholars, journalists and commentators to help you make sense of the world. I'm Mark Kenny from the Australian National University. Join me at the Democracy Sausage Hot Plate every Monday and Thursday. Welcome back. We're here today speaking with Mark Howden about the recent State of the Environment report that was released by the Australian government uh, and looking at the policy options and opportunities that face us now, particularly federally, when we're responding to the State of the Environment and thinking about climate change beyond. Uh, before the break, we began to talk about the importance of imagining our human future. Uh, as we record this, Australia is in the middle of the first parliamentary sitting week under our new Labor government, and there's already been some changes. Prime Minister Anthony Albanese has created a new so-called super department, the Department of Climate Change, Energy, the Environment and Water. The department will serve two cabinet ministers, both Tanya Plebisek as Minister for the Environment and Water and Chris Bowen as Minister for Climate Change and Energy. Mark, what do you make of this change for Australia's climate and environment policy making? Look, um, I, I think it's actually a, an extremely interesting move by the new government. Uh, you know, if you sort of step back and you look at it, uh, what, what's happened here is that they've put two senior ministers, very experienced ministers, uh, in charge of this new super department, which brings together those different elements, the um, climate change, energy, environment and water elements, uh, and 
the expectation, I think, is that that will be dealt with coherently so that we will have energy policy which is aligned with climate policy and which is aligned with water policy. And and, and I've actually been arguing for that integration for a long time now. And, and so I think that's a very positive statement. Um, and particularly when you've got uh, ministers such as Minister Plibersek, who's you know, as far as I can work out, her key love in life is the education of, of Australians. And I think it's a great thing to be passionate about. But taking her into the environment portfolio, I think, you know, and to some extent out of her comfort zone, um, is a statement of the importance um, that is being placed on, on environment and water in this new government. And similarly, Chris Bowen, with all his economic expertise and bringing that into the uh, you know, climate change and energy domain, I think is also a statement about uh, how uh, we want to actually bring um, this issue into the mainstream for Australia. I think it's a really huge change in policy that we can use the phrase climate change again and that it's on the side of a building. Um, I, I would I share your enthusiasm personally for the, the multidisciplinary approach and putting putting a variety of things into one department. I think there's tremendous advantage for synergies and looking at both comparative risk and advantage. But one of our colleagues here at ANU, Honorary Professor Peter Burnett, has described the decision to create this super department as risky, saying that it spreads the risk uh, that the risks spreading our public service too thin. What what are your thoughts about that? Look, it really depends on the uh, capacity of the um, the leadership within the department. Uh, and yes, it does add load to the secretary of the department by having multiple ministers and uh, you know multiple significant uh, elements of the portfolio. Uh, but at the same time, I think what you'll see is uh, the uh, people in the deputy secretaries and the division heads, etc., um, stepping up to the plate. I actually think they're really looking forward to this challenge and they're going to really put a lot of effort into it. I, I think just on that, one of the things that we often talk about in, in policy generally, but you know, in social policy that I work on is the problem of the silos, you know, and the departments don't talk to each other. And I do think this is a really interesting opportunity to see what happens when we start to break down some of those silos and it, it could be very effective. Look, I absolutely agree. And we have had times uh, in federal government before where um, depart departments worked very constructively together. So if we go back to agriculture and environment during the land keys, we actually saw very strong interaction rather than adversarial. It was very positive synergistic interaction. And so I think that's that's uh, an example of, of where we've uh, broken down those silos in the past. And and, and I think what often happens if you get uh, very collegiate um, approaches within the cabinet uh, across the different portfolios, um, that then filters down to how the departments themselves operate and it tends to reduce that adversarial element and, and increase the collaborative element. And, and I think what we have is a government here who actually is committed to collaboration. It's a, a key part of their differentiation uh, from uh, some of the other uh, groups who they campaigned against. And so so I think what we'll see is, is that attempts at collaboration being a hallmark of the new government. And Mark, one of the, the other interesting things that we're seeing is this government being far more interested um, than the past government was in terms of international collaboration. Minister Plibersek has said that one of the most important things that we can do is be part of the global effort to tackle climate change. And of course, that's that's quite a shift um, in language and, in and in intent. 
the the government has now committed to a forty three percent emissions reduction target by twenty twenty uh, by twenty thirty. What does the science tell us about the commitment that's on the table from the new government? Is it going to be enough? Yeah, Sharon, I, I sort of you know like what you've sort of raised there, which was that that uh, um, increased focus on the international aspects, and, and and I think it's very telling that a lot of the the first weeks of the government were taken up. Uh, doing uh, international um, visits of different types into the Pacific, into Asia, into Europe, um, and uh, and rebuilding uh, many of those relationships and, uh, and, and establishing uh, the credibility of the new government and, and communicating the particular goals of the new government, including the 43% emission reduction target. Now, in terms of, of that 43%, um, I've, I've heard lots of uh, commentary about that uh, and uh, and some of it's been supportive and some of it's been critical and saying it should be more. Um, and, and of course, uh, you know, there's a strong element of, of uh, you know, political choice about whether it's 40% or 43 or 46 or 50. Um, and, and that political choice is about a combination of uh, looking at what's needed according to the science, uh, looking what's achievable in terms of, of rapid change in our economy, uh, particularly given all the other stresses in our economy, um, but also how we position ourselves internationally, uh, which was your first point. Now, when we look at the science, is that um, that 43% reduction is actually pretty consistent with the IPCC's recent uh, emission reduction trajectories that keep us to around 1.5 degrees. Um, the IPCC's baseline is slightly different from Australia's, so it's more a 2010 baseline rather than a 2005, uh, but it's within CUI. Um, we'd probably like to see it's slightly higher from a science point of view. So, so there is a band of possibilities and the 43 is at the lower end of that band and we'd probably like to see it um, probably at the higher end of that band. Um, but in my view, it's much more important to get started on a, um, a slightly lower target than not get started at all on a higher target. So I'd actually um, really support uh, people getting behind the 43% by 2030 as a start and making sure we deliver on that and ramping up our ambition quickly for 2035. As we're recording this episode, the Australian Greens, whose support the government needs in the Senate to, to pass this legislation, looks set to support the government's target of 43%. There's a lot of talk about the floor rather than a ceiling, and we wonder just what would be what would happen, what sort of message we would send if we were able to push past 43% uh, as a ceiling uh, and achieve a, a higher amount of emissions reduction over the, 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 the medium term. I think many people would actually like to see us uh, significantly exceed um, the target, and uh, and I think that would be the government's goals. So I've heard the minister say exactly that, uh, and and I think it would be welcomed in from many quarters. It would, I think, be consistent with our past experience, which actually shows us when we start down these transition pathways, we find that we can actually transition faster and more cheaply than we ever thought was possible. So, so you know, until you actually try, you don't know how um, quickly you can actually make those transitions. 
And so I think COVID has shown us that, for example, you know, that we could actually do big changes very quickly. Um, but the problem with COVID, of course, was uh, they were behavioural changes, not structural changes. And we need structural changes in our, in our economy to have sustained emission reductions. Mark, I think the question of um, the role of, of fossil fuels in our in our economy kind of follows on very nicely from from that that conversation. And just this week, Prime Minister Albanese has ruled out banning new fossil fuels, saying um, saying that doing so would pose too great a risk to the Australian economy. And he's also made the point that Australian coal that's exported from some of these projects could be replaced by dirtier alternatives from other coal exporting nations if if Australia kind of pulls out of that market. What are your thoughts on this? This seems to really be at the heart of, of some of the debates. Is digging up and exporting coal just an unfortunate reality that we have to accept for the time being? Or, or can we start to think very differently about this? It's a very challenging topic because it, it is extraordinarily um, political in its nature. Um, there are very strong possible winners and losers from different decisions here. When we look at that argument about uh, if we didn't sell our coal, someone else would sell that. That's actually often called the drug dealer's defence uh, in in you know uh, you know various debates. Um, you know if if it wasn't this drug dealer that I buy my drugs from, it'll be someone else. And um, and and that's a, if if you actually think about it, that's a, a great example of as soon as you try arguing that, you know that you're on the wrong path. Um, uh, it's it's not the way we should be arguing it. I think the arguments should be about uh, how can we have a, an effective transition um, away from fossil fuels, including restrictions, not necessarily cancellations, but some restrictions on uh, opening up new coal and gas, uh, but doing it in an orderly way, uh, which allows us both to reduce greenhouse gas emissions over a period of time uh, and a short period of time, if possible, um, but at the same time uh, manage uh, what is quite a challenging economic situation. And because because one of the possible, you know, if you if you do a scenario which has you know very rapid decarbonisation, which uh, completely throws a spanner in the economic works. Um, there's going to be a lot of people who will hurt, and they will associate that hurt with climate change action, and they will probably turn against climate change action as a result. And I don't think that's an outcome we want. What we want to do is have both emission reductions and um, social and economic benefit flowing at the same time. And we know we can do that. What we've seen over the last decades is a separation of greenhouse gas emissions and economic metrics like GDP. So, so we can have environment and economy um, and social benefits, social outcomes at the same time, but we can't do it by taking a sledgehammer. I think what we have to do is a very, very insightful and incisive set of policies rather than ones which treat it as a black and white decision. Mark, I, I think it's such an interesting and important set of comments that you've, you've just made. And one of the things that we are seeing um, separately discussed by this government and particularly led by the Treasurer Jim Chalmers is, is shifting towards a well-being economy um, and thinking beyond GDP. How do you think that shift that we're seeing um, as we lead into the, the October budget, how do you think that shift is is going to impact on the kinds of issues that we've been discussing? And do you think it creates the space to think quite differently 
um, and perhaps to, to recognise the shortcomings of GDP and begin to um, to develop different approaches that are going to ensure that people are protected as we make transitions. Look, I, I think the broad idea of moving to a wellbeing economy and, and similar metrics like the genuine progress indicators, which take into account both the goods and the bads of different policy options and different sets of activities, uh, is actually the way we should be going. Uh, it, it generates a much more nuanced discussion, which allows us to assess the trade-offs of different decisions and, and options. Uh, and I think we need to understand the trade-offs. And and that conversation about you know coal, coal and gas mines, new coal and gas, is a classic example. We need to understand the trade-offs of that to actually make an informed and just decision. And, and so for me, uh, having... Uh, metrics and having a framework in which we can, which supports those um, effective discussions is really crucial. And uh, if we keep on going down the pathway of only measuring uh, sort of GDP type metrics, which count the bad things onto our, our national accounts, um, doesn't seem the way to achieve a sustainable society. And increasingly, we'll be out of um, step with how businesses are expected to operate um, with the uh, development and implementation of the new environmental sustainability standards um, that are likely to be rolled out over the next year or so. And so um, what I think we want to do is have uh, the community, business and government largely all using the same sets of conversations, even if they use slightly different metrics uh, to measure their performance um, but so we actually can head in the same direction in a way which is informed, um, equitable and just and effective. And if we don't have those sensible metrics which show the goods and the bads, we can't simply have that conversation. I think this is such an exciting time. You know, Anna Gritter and I have been talking on this pod for probably a couple of years now about the potential of a wellbeing economy and to see this shift actually starting to take place, I think it opens up all kinds of opportunities for, for different um, and, and much more caring conversations. But I, I did want to return for a moment just to, to some of the international issues. And, you know, we've talked about Australia engaging much more constructively now or wanting to engage under the new government much more constructively um, with the international community on these issues. But we, we are recording at a time when Europe or parts of Europe and North America are on fire, when we're seeing unprecedented heat waves across Europe and we're seeing political leaders in those countries explicitly saying this is climate change. Are we going to see Australia under much more international pressure to act as other countries are, are feeling you know, what, what is being experienced across Europe and North America at the moment um, and, of course, what Australia has great experience of in terms of natural disasters? I think absolutely is the short answer. Um, when when these things happen, the the fires and the floods and the um, also the freezing events, because they're all part of the same pattern of changes in the jet stream, uh, those those countries hurt. You know, when Germany had those massive floods, uh, you know, unprecedented floods, um, that hurt that country, and uh, and the politicians are feeling that. And so, when they go into those international negotiations, they take that pain with them, and there's an expectation that others will feel that pain and respond to that pain in sensible and caring ways. And and I think Australia needs to be part of that discussion. And we also need to show that we're actually making our own contributions to reduce that future pain that might occur if those events happen again. And Mark, has Australia 
kind of engages much more with um, the international community on these issues. How do you see Australia's role and, and what can Australia do in terms of supporting other nations, particularly countries in our region and where Australia plays an important role um, as an aid donor, both in terms of, of finances but also in terms of, of technical support and technology? Um, how do you see Australia playing a role in supporting other countries through their en- energy transition towards renewables? Well, I think there's lots of ways we can help um, other countries in our region and outside our region, and and that's through, amongst other things, through effective aid programs. And when we look at uh, the aid programs, many of the countries, say Pacific nations, they're not so much interested in the mitigation, the emission reduction, energy transition. The thing that really uh, matters to them is the climate adaptation responses. So... They're very small emitters of greenhouse gases. You know, obviously they can make their own contribution to reductions, but, you know, a reduction against a very small emission is still not that significant globally. But they are very significant nations in terms of uh, cultural significance, in terms of their presence within uh, the Pacific, uh, in terms of geopolitical importance, uh, and in terms of environmental management, say, through their economic zone. And, And so... You know, we need to um, support those adaptation responses in those countries. And there's other countries uh, where that energy transition is perhaps more important um, than uh, the immediate adaptation response. And so maybe if we think about uh, countries like Indonesia, um, which which uh, really need that energy transition. So we need to have our aid program um, moving between that emission reduction component and that adaptation component based on the needs of those nations that we're dealing with. And uh, so I think that's part of the picture. Um, We can also contribute through our broad science and technology and transfer of that into uh, other contexts and not just developing country contexts, but many developed countries um, benefit from uh, that leadership from other countries. So they, they import those ideas and those technologies into their own places. So it's not just a developed versus developing nation transfer. And, and Australia has for a long time uh, sort of, you know, hit above its weight to use that, that analogy, you know, performed, uh, you know, very strongly uh, given the size of our economy in terms of that technical transfer, that scientific capability. And I think we need to continue that and support that and, and build on that because it is one of our strengths. This government has a lot on its plate. There's a war in Ukraine. There are tensions in the Australian uh, Australia's immediate region. There's an ongoing coronavirus pandemic. There's a cost of living crisis with highly complex economic dynamics and a budget that, from all reports, is in a tenuous position. And that's really just reflecting on the politics of the last week or so. Events come along and hijack even the most well-intentioned policy agenda. I'm sure then back in 2019 and as the Black Summer events unfolded that we were all, many of us were hoping for a much brisker response to climate change. And yet here we are with potential opportunities for legislative and uh, policy change. The, the the CSIRO today has released a report on the mega trends that might influence Australia in the next 20 years. And I'm wondering about this dynamic of interdependent, interrelated challenges. 
Given the scale and the urgency of the challenges that we face in Australia's environment and with the challenge of climate change, how can we ensure that this stays front of mind for this government and for all of those that will follow? It's a really great question and it's going to be a challenge uh, for all those reasons you talk about. And uh, and people do tend to uh, revert to the short term uh, when push comes to the shove. And that's why I think it's really important for leadership uh, by all levels of government and others uh, to keep it on the agenda. Uh, because whilst we're looking at having you know, plenty of rainfall across the continent, sometimes too much rainfall, is that it won't be too long before we, you know, this La Nina peters out, it's already starting to peter out, and uh, and we start to go back into normal or, or dry conditions. And and all of a sudden, all of those issues about drought and fires and things will pop up again. And so so we, we actually need to use these times uh, where we have enough rainfall to actually establish all of those uh, sets of processes and activities uh, which protect us from when things get bad um, and so you know when they get dry again and so so we just need to I think uh, find smart ways to keep our you know foot on the accelerator of climate action uh, to integrate it with other activities so that it's not an add-on it's not an unnecessary cost it's actually part and parcel of what we do uh, and we need to I think be, celebrating the successes that we have when we actually start to get wins so so when we you know you know have uh you know new legislation we we celebrate what we've done rather than just trying to tear it down because of some perceived inadequacy you know when we have uh some scientific breakthroughs in relation to energy or something similar we celebrate that we actually acknowledge that this is a step forward um uh, you know, when we look at those mega trends that CSIRO is talking about today, um, we make sure um, that we actually support the analytical and innovation capability that positions us well in those mega trends. We don't want to have a a mega trend of you know climate, but then actually take away all of the climate change capability as happened about eight years ago in CSIRO. Um, we we actually want to see fit for purpose decisions that align us well with those mega trends rather than set us apart from them. So for me, I think um, what we need to do is, is see everyone um, as having some degree of responsibility in this. It's, it's not just the key politicians. It's not just the business leaders. Um, we're all affected by climate change, and through our actions, we all affect climate change through the greenhouse gas emissions from our food, from our vehicles, from our housing. And so we need to find uh, a way of sort of accepting that, but at the same time is not accepting that it's good enough, what we're doing. So we need to acknowledge our role, but not get hung up on that in a way that prevents us from taking better action in the future. And so, so for example, you know, when we build the next suburb, you know, instead of doing it the way we've always done, let's build a suburb that is people-friendly which is climate friendly, which is biodiversity friendly, which is transport friendly. Um, we know how to do this, but we're just not doing it at the moment. We can actually really turn this around very quickly and we can turn it around in a way that every one of us benefits, but we're just not doing that at the moment because that combined voice which is demanding doing better than we are just isn't quite there yet. Mark, this has been a fantastic conversation and and I must say you know the 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 issues facing us when we think about climate change when we think about biodiversity loss and you know the the, the problems that we're facing sometimes seem overwhelming 
I really want to thank you for this conversation today because listening to your knowledge and your wisdom actually leaves me with some hope and some optimism rather than the deep depression that I often feel when we have these kinds of conversations. And I do think that is so incredibly important. You know, I often talk with young people about the issues that we've been discussing and get that sense that, you know, they often feel there is no hope. And that's a terrible thing for young people to feel. To me, this conversation has given us a pathway forward. It gives us some hope. It gives us some optimism. So so thank you for that. As we draw this conversation to a close, though, I wonder if I could ask you for the one key piece of advice that you would give to Chris Bowen, the Minister for for Energy Change and for for, for Climate Change and Energy. And of course, perhaps you've already given him this piece of advice, but um, we'd love to hear what that key piece of advice would be from you. If if I had to say one thing to Chris, and uh, and and I wouldn't presume that he should take notice of this, but it's actually to think transformation is that incremental changes to the way our system is running uh, will not deliver those outcomes in terms of people and planet that I think we're after here. Uh, We have to do more than just incremental change. Uh, We can't just tweak the existing levers. We have to be a bit more ambitious. Uh, We have to be um, accepting of the risk that ambition brings but also looking forward to the benefits that that can bring in terms of having a sustainable Australia. I think that is a fantastic piece of advice to to leave us with, Mark. And there does seem at the moment that there is perhaps an opportunity for us to think transformationally. Thank you so much for joining us today. It's been an absolute pleasure to talk with you. Thanks, Sharon. Thanks, Anna Greta. Anna Greta, I have to say I really enjoyed that conversation. You know, we we often say that, but I, I really did enjoy that conversation because it did have that sense of hope, the sense that there is the possibility for real transformation. And I must say, when I was listening to your excellent, as always, introduction and just that litany of catastrophes that are facing us, I was feeling pretty down about the world. You know, we are facing such serious challenges on on all fronts. But what I take from that conversation with Mark is that we can do something to make change. We can do something transformative. And I think that's a, a such an important message. Um, and he gave us some really practical ways of moving forward. You know, do, do you share that sense of optimism that I'm taking away from that conversation? I really do. And I, I think the, there's been a seismic shift with the results of the last election. I'm, I'm not a partisan person, but I really am struck by the remarkable change, particularly when we're thinking about both acknowledging the complexity and the challenge of the issues ahead, and I'm thinking particularly about climate change, uh, but also the opportunities to address them. So uh, simply being able to use the words climate change, being able to foster the conversations that Mark mentioned that are so important for our community, particularly when we're thinking about adaptation and looking toward the future. I, I really feel like we've got opportunities now that we certainly didn't have earlier. Um, and for those listeners who enjoyed today's conversation with Mark, we, we have him on this podcast not infrequently. We spoke with him, with Barbara Norman, earlier in the year about uh, the need for regional adaptation. And I'm actually reminded today of a conversation we had with Mark with Tim Hollow in our Wellbeing Economics series a year or two back where, where we were thinking quite imaginatively about economic restructuring as an intervention for, uh, for effective action on preserving and protecting our 
our extraordinarily valuable uh, environment. And so I feel like we're back into a space again where we can think we can both acknowledge the the extraordinary science around us and that we can foster and grow imaginative conversations that give us a pathway toward a much better future. Uh, we're walking through what will be a really challenging time. I think that's exactly right, Anna Greta. And I, I, I think about the conversations that we had probably about 18 months ago where, you know, you and I were saying, what if we did a mini-series on a well-being economy? You know, what would that look like? And wondering who might talk, whether people would take it seriously, and thinking that it really was blue sky thinking. Whereas now, you know, we're, we're, we're seriously moving towards a well-being economy. A number of countries have already made that shift. Uh, we we see the shortcomings and the failings of the approach that has guided us globally for so long, and we really do have opportunities for a very different future, for a future where we genuinely value caring, care for the environment, care for communities, care for one another, um, and I think that's very exciting. So, Sharon, this is the first of a series of conversations around systems in crisis, and I, I think that phrase systems in crisis is a quite an accurate reflection when we're thinking about climate change and when we're thinking about the state of the environment in the Australian context. And we can, over the weeks ahead, no doubt, continue to reflect on both the conversations we've had on economic transition towards a well-being metric but also on how robust this hashtag value care might be. I hope that listeners enjoy the series of enjoyed today's conversation and will continue to enjoy and join us for the conversations that we have in the weeks ahead. It should be a great series of conversations and discussions with really challenging and interesting ideas. Policy Forum Pod is, of course, produced by policyforum.net, and we will leave a link to the publications that we've discussed in the show there. We are based at the Crawford School of Public Policy at the Australian National University. If you're interested in our degree programs and short courses, then you can find out more at crawford.anu.edu.au slash study. It's a really great place to spend time for solving some of these policy problems. Thank you so much for joining us on these episodes. Uh, reach out to us. We love feedback. You can find us on Twitter at APPS Policy Forum or you can email us at podcast at policyforum.net. We're on Facebook under the Policy Forum Pod uh, Facebook group. But from me, Anna Greta Hunter, I will see you next week. And from me, Sharon Bessel, it's bye-bye for now. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. <laughs> 